And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We are proud to announce that the Planet Trillion Trees podcast has received a silver medal award for a podcast series through Garden Communicators International. We thank Garden Communicators for the recognition. This podcast is being recorded on September 30th, 2022. Christy Rawlinson is the forest ecologist at the Martin Arboretum in Lael, Illinois. As a research scientist, much of her work looks at how individual trees, forest communities, and ecosystems respond to changing weather and climate. Christie's work involves a variety of approaches, including tree ring phenology and citizen science and computer modeling. Christie holds a Bachelor of Arts in Biology and Environmental Studies from Oberlin College and a Master of Science and PhD degrees in ecology from Penn State University. At the Morton Arboretum, Christy has been highly involved with science and climate change communication to a variety of professional and non-professional audiences. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Christy. We're delighted that you can be with us today. Happy to be here. So in looking at your background, it's really quite impressive. And I wanted to ask you, how did you come into the study of trees and climate change and species distribution, uh, this very specific type of uh, science, and to be at the cusp of that while everyone's moving towards that? I think that's an interesting scenario. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, rural Western Virginia, a, a literal stone's throw from West Virginia, but on the Virginia side. And my county is actually mostly national forest. So it's a place where you either learn to love or hate the trees. Um, it's pretty clear which end I came down on. In terms of getting into, into the climate change end thing, sometimes I look around and it's, it's a little surprising to me because I actually had no desire early on to study climate change. I was kind of sick of it in college because I had politics courses and it just seemed too political, too fraught with like conflict and people that I just didn't want to deal with. But my interest was really in that idea of species distributions. You know, I remember hiking along the ridgetops in the Appalachians and on one side is a pine forest and on the other is, you know, a very mesic deciduous forest. And that, it just really amazed me how you can have these very stark differences in distributions based on these environmental characteristics. And that's how I got into the climate and was thinking at first more of kind of the fundamental role climate and microclimate plays in what tree can grow where. 
And then just kind of as I got into research and, and in my master's, I had worked on a, a warming experiment, uh, but, but it became a way for me to wrap my head around climate change and kind of set aside some of the politics end, but like, okay, the climate is changing. How is it impacting our, our trees? And then letting other people argue about what the, the should we do about it kind of end of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it and it's interesting because, you know, as you travel through, at least for me, traveling through the state of Pennsylvania, you could actually see on one side of the mountains uh, a different type of or group of trees that are on the other side of the mountain because of location and aspect, how they, they are positioned and what direction they're facing. And to me, I think that's really fascinating because it tells you a lot about the resiliency of trees and how close they can be to one another just on the other side of the mountain. Yeah, or even uh, looking at elevational gradients, you know, right. how spring goes from down in the hall or up to the top, so, or in other areas like the Smokies, you have different communities along there based on that fundamental difference in climate. And so it, it really becomes this, even if you ignore climate change, you just can't argue with the role climate has on structuring these forests. Right, location. That microclimate that you're talking about is so critical. And we're even seeing that in cities where trees that we used to be able to plant in these little microclimates, we can't plant them anymore because of the reflective heat off of glass and off, off of uh, paved surfaces. It just can totally kill a tree or it can make a tree thrive depending on its genetic characteristics. Yeah, there's a, a student I've worked with a little bit uh, out in New York City, IODs, and he uh, has said that some of the biggest oaks that he's seen in Brooklyn are growing actually in the shade of buildings and it provides a little bit of a, of a buffering community for it, it seems. So to sum up in terms of uh, the discussion of species distribution 101, what are those two or three factors that are gonna make a tree wanna grow here versus there? Oh, <laughs> you're, you're asking me to simplify. When we talk about kind of the basic things that a tree needs to grow, it needs sunlight, it needs water, and it needs temperatures that aren't going to roast it or freeze it. And then, you know, it's, yeah. it's those interactions and how it, it fits in with each individual species' adaptations, its traits, whether it has needle leaves or broad leaves, that determine how it plays out. And then things like the soil kind of end up modifying all of that. And then we can get into like all the fungal and microbiota communities that, sure. that play this piece that we underappreciate. But in general, if we're thinking about kind of the three basic factors, it's sun, temperature, water. Thank you for that. And then before we went and started interviewing you this, uh, just now, we talked a little bit about moisture. And I've heard that come up. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that is kind of like the primary driver, especially as we watch species struggle and no longer flourish in habitats that they've been in for hundreds of years. Am I right? I think that's true in many places. In, in other places, maybe not so much. I think when we talk about direct effects of climate and climate change on trees and forests, particularly if we look over to the southwestern U.S., it is drying that is driving a lot of these trends. But there are other places globally where there are other factors and other aspects of climate change fitting in there. So sea level rise, we've now got some trees that were previously didn't have their feet in the water are getting not just 
water and, and having to deal with that, but dealing with salt water and salt water intrusion. Right. And then for, you know, the Appalachians or, or here in the Midwest, spread of invasive, uh, particularly insects and pathogens is kind of an indirect effect of climate, but it's one of our biggest challenges here. So for purposes of this discussion, when we say climate, then we are talking about periods of excessive heat, excessive drought, uh, nighttime temperatures that aren't dropping down sufficiently, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I would say those tend to be the ones that we, we think about the most and that we understand the best. When we drill down into kind of how trees grow, it, it has to do a lot with not just those, those absolute factors and, and hitting particular thresholds, but doing a lot of thinking about what we call no analog climates, or, or uh, Catherine Hayhoe calls it weather weirding. Mm. And so, you know, in an individual area, we're starting to get different combinations or different sequences of weather events that are just kind of different from what we've seen in the past. Winters are warming, springs are warming, but we still have late freezes. And so now we're getting trees that have more of those growth accumulation curves, those, those uh, growing degree days, mm -hmm. but then they still get hit by that late freeze. And so it's not just kind of taking everything from the south and just getting yeah. it northward. There's still all these combinations at play. Wow. One of the things I have, I wanted to talk to you about it and um, it kind of came about during the summer too, you know, people were saying, I don't have any tomatoes on my tomato plants. Well, it was too hot for the plant to pollinate. And one of the things I, I kind of would get alarmed at is when is it too hot for a plant to be pollinated, whether it's by insect or whether it's by wind or the lack of wind or other environmental issues that would stop pollination from happening, which would then affect the progeny for decades. And I worry about that too, because someone was saying that they didn't see any fruit at all on their oak tree this year. And I said, well, think about what we went through. And we had wind, but we had those ice storms and we had those cold nights and it could have affected the pollen. And, you know, try to explain that to someone who's not a scientist. It's really challenging, especially when there are all these different interdependencies. You know, you have to have the flowers at the same time as the insect. And it's been one of the biggest challenges for predicting climate vulnerability for trees and, and threatened tree species is that uh, for a lot of these endangered species listing kind of things, it's based off of population viability. And we just still have so many missing pieces of the puzzle to concretely connect you know, what's going on in an individual year or an individual month to pollination, to acorn or, or fruit production, and, and then it's germination and long-term survival. There's still all of these pieces of the puzzle and all these sequences have to play out right that it makes it incredibly difficult to do robust vulnerability assessments for most tree species out there. That's a hard thing. We can look at our tomatoes because they're in front of us, or we can look at other smaller species of plant that are in front of us and know that they're not producing seed because we've had that really high 104 degree temperature where we know that their maximum of pollination is at, at 94 or something like that. And we go 10 degrees above that, you know, how does that affect even the cells within the context of that particular plant? And when we talk about trees, the same thing, you know, what is it doing to the cells in the tree? You know, this year we saw a lot of pre-leaf fall. And now I'm looking at one tree in particular, which is a gray green. It used to be bright green. It's a red maple. 
and it lost three quarters of its leaves and it's holding on to a quarter of them. And the color is not the same, but it's holding on for dear life. And I don't think these are going to color up until, uh, and I think they will probably not even color up. They'll probably fall when it freezes just so that they can get the last morsels of chlorophyll and, and you know, that photosynthesis going. So, you know, I, I worry about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. As, as you might imagine, fall color season is, is about to hit full swing here. And we always get, you know, many calls a day. When's the best time going to be fall color? Is it going to be a good year, a bad year? And the short answer is like, I don't fully know because there's, it, it's how each day plays out and all these different factors play out. And, and you know, Many of our maples here at the Arboretum are doing fantastically with, we've had a pretty moderate year and we've got some great Orange Creek thing in, mm. but then I get the call from somebody in Chicago, like, well, my tree is looking terrible. I'm like, well, it, it has to do with all these very fine scale factors and how do we connect those dots from what happens at a cellular level, you know, from even just an individual hour at a high temperature, what does that mean for the timing and intensity of fall color, and what does that mean for how the tree grows next year? And that's what sure. I love to nerd out about. <laughs> of course, <laughs> Christy, I wanted to I wanted to ask about your work at the Forest Ecology Lab, and it's interesting to read the mission a little bit that you're trying to conduct science that connects climate and community and and uh, distribution. Right? Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you're up to and what some of the current experiments look like? Yeah, we use a, <laughs> a bit of a jack of all trades. We've got our fingers in a lot of, of different pots at the moment. But what's motivating a lot of my work and our work here in, in my lab group is trying to think about how we can get information now and use the information on what we can see right now on our grounds to improve our long-term and even short-term predictions of how trees are going to respond to weather and by extension, climate change. So we have a, a many, many projects going on, but kind of the three that I'm most excited about or three approaches to this have to do with tree rings, citizen science, and then computer modeling. So on the tree ring front, the Morton Arboretum provides such a unique opportunity to study trees from around the world that have been grown in the same location for the past hundred years. Mm -hmm. We are old, we are big, we are awesome, but trees die. And so when we're removing trees from our grounds, uh, I've been able to work with our arborist team to get cross sections of them. And we are, we are doing a full dendrochronological workup on them so that we can look at how these trees responded to extreme weather events or even just normal weather in the past to better tease out some of this idea of nature versus nurture in trees or how closely related tree species from the same region or completely different continents respond to weather and climate. And then we're combining that with citizen science to look at phenology. So we did a lot of talking about the seasons and, and what changes we're seeing or, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. We have a, an army of awesome volunteers that go out in our collections, focusing on our oak, maple, and elm collections, really. And they start in March and they go through Thanksgiving and they're recording using protocols from the USA National Phenology Network. When are the leaves appearing? 
when are the flowers appearing? Because that's so hard to get good data on in forests. Yeah. When does fall color start to appear? When did the acorns actually start to form? And then when did they start to ripen, if they ripened at all, as opposed to being aborted partway through the summer? And then because we don't have time machines yet, we use computer modeling to put it all together and do kind of a lot of crazy scenarios and things that we can't do in reality. So we're able to take the climate change projections that we hear about in the news and combine that with, you know, what we know about the timing of tree growth or how a tree grows well in a hot summer versus a cold summer or even do uh, manipulations you know, in, in the computer world where we cut down our forests and see how it's gonna grow back. And so the uh, computer simulation is something I thought I never would be doing, but it's such an important toolbox to letting us get beyond the constraints of reality to really kind of understand the bounds of the system and what might be. Yeah, yeah. So is it fair to ask you, what you're going to do with that data as you look at perhaps uh, the issues with assisted migration or developing species lists for northern Illinois or planting for 2050 or something like that? Absolutely. Those are super common things that come up. One thing we have going, and uh, the official announcement should come on October 13th, okay. uh, but we have a new project uh, that's going to be funded by NOAA to do drought forecasting and mm -hmm. urban drought assessment using trees, using Chicago as a case study. So we're going to be combining these information streams to improve our, our planting recommendations and assessment for drought so we can do better targeted intervention, both spatially within the regions of Chicago, like, oh, go look at this place because they've got those harsher environments. We need to prioritize watering and tree care in those locations if they're gonna survive a drought or on a species basis. And by getting kind of those short-term things, build it out to 2050 and 2100 to come up with better science-backed and kind of region-specific uh, drought-tolerant planting recommendations. So that's one thing we're working on. There was a first part there too, and I totally forget what it was. <laughs> Did it was assisted migration? Yeah. So I haven't been as involved in assisted migration. Kind of the variation on that that I have uh, gotten into being here at the Morton Arboretum is thinking about collections for conservation of species and particularly threatened species. So one thing we're doing is, is using this idea of kind of a climate envelope. So it's based off of, you know, where do we see trees and what climate is it currently associated with? And then finding what other gardens would be good matches for that, both in the present and in the future. And so that's some work that we're really spinning up as the threats to trees, particularly ones in South and in these drier environments, become more pressing. So not necessarily migration to sustain populations kind of in the wild in different locations, but at least safeguarding that lineage and that genetic information in other gardens. That's also one of the vital roles of Arboretum is to make sure that when there are collections being collected in Asia and they're brought back here or, you know, vice versa, which happens all the time too, how do those plants respond in those new locations that may be at the same latitude that we are? And, you know, we pick a spot that's very similar to Philadelphia or to Morton out in Illinois. 
we see if they respond almost identical to, to what they were doing when we collected the seed over in that particular spot. And a lot of times that surprises people because um, they have no idea that that's what an arboretum does. And also the people who are collecting sometimes are surprised at the results that happen. Um, they're not what they're expecting, or they might run into a plant grouping. I know this has happened at the Morris Arboretum where they bring back a grouping of plants and they discover that they have such incredibly good cold tolerance that we weren't expecting on these really cold winters that we hadn't had in a while. And all of a sudden we have them and they survive. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. Trees will never cease to amaze you. And I didn't know that was the kind of thing that happened at Arboreta until I started working at one. And the many different ways at which the Arboretum brings together people and experts from different areas to look at that. Um, the guy on the other side of the wall from me looks at it from a genetics perspective and thinks about diversity. Uh, Ken Shearer, our plant breeder, thinks about kind of broad adaptability. How can we get as many uh, good adaptations as possible? And then we have others that try to make sure we're representing you know, the broad breadth of trees or aesthetics. That's something I hardly ever think about as a forest <laughs> kind of person yeah. is, you know, it being pretty and predictably pretty as well, because trees never cease to surprise you often for the better, uh, but sometimes not. And I'm thinking too about, about street trees because here in Philadelphia, I mean, we're using things that most people would have never thought of using. And I'm thinking like a Kentucky coffee tree, yellow wood, um, those two that pop out of my brain that, that I see a lot now, which you never saw before. You only saw them in botanic gardens or arboreta. Yeah, it's really exciting to see those make their way into streets and into to communities because urban environments and kind of what's been planted in the past have such a history of, you know, going for one species at a time because it's great and uniformity with a popular aesthetic. But here in Chicago, you know, we've had a couple waves of the downfall of, of that. You know, my mom talks about how all the elms have been lost. And then more recently, we lost all the ashes that they planted after the elms died. And so for me, it's really exciting to hear different species being tried and introducing that diversity into our streets. I'm back and forth to Illinois once or twice a year, Christy, and I have family living up in uh, McHenry County. So I'm guessing that's about 50, 60 miles north of where you are. Mm -hmm. Are you able to talk a little bit about the pathology associated with uh, what oaks are going through and the, and the decline up there? very very kind of surface level this is this is one okay. of those areas where I, I collaborate a lot with others including stephanie adams our plant healthcare leader who is a pathologist by training okay and it, it's always very interesting to talk with stephanie because she views things very differently than i yeah but we're working together to categorize these patterns of oak decline because it's not necessarily a simple one piece of the puzzle story right what Stephanie is looking at a lot from the oak decline end and that pathology side has to do with root rot diseases and particularly a, a fungus called, a, or a fungal family called Phytophthora that is widespread. It does very well in wet springs, which we have been getting more and more of here in Northern Illinois and our part of the Midwest. And so that's something we're very concerned about. You know, that that's something that 
is definitely a big factor in open areas, but there are all these other background forest dynamics that have been going on. The oaks tend to be our oldest trees in the area because mm. of they were the dominant tree at the time of European settlement in this region. And so there might be a component of kind of age-related decline and, and just kind of natural turnover that isn't getting replaced. And then in the natural areas, we have a classic story of the oaks are in decline. Meanwhile, the shade-tolerant maples that haven't been exposed to severe fire a whole lot recently are well-poised to kind of come and take over. And that's a trend we see from Illinois all the way over in, into Pennsylvania. They are the challenges of oak regeneration. So there, there are many different facets to this decline depending on where you're looking at. And it's many different things and which is the part that's tipping things over into a, a not rosy situation for oaks right now. Have you seen in the field any oak regeneration where there's been losses of, of mature specimens? Yeah, that is something that uh, it is so mixed in this area. So particularly here in the Chicago region, we're on what is called the, the prairie forest boundary. If you go to the west, you get more, more grassland and, and prairie habitat. If you go to the east, you get into solid forests. So it's a big mosaic here. And some of that is driven by topography. Some of that is driven by differences in soil between here at the Arboretum, up in McHenry County, and over into Lake County, which is kind of north of Chicago. There's a group, the Chicago Wilderness Oak Ecosystem Recovery Project, that brings together managers and stakeholders from around the region and kind of lets them exchange information. Hey, I did burning in the fall and it worked really well. We saw a big pulse of oak regeneration, but inevitably somebody else pipes up, well, we tried that and it's not working. So, so it can be very patchy. Yeah. Here at the Arboretum, we've had a couple of uh, disturbances. We had a derecho come through in 2020 that created some big gaps. And so I've been kind of keeping my eye on those to see if we're, we're getting a big pulse of regeneration. We've got some, but we're not getting a huge wave of regeneration that I think we would love to be seeing. Gotcha. You've touched on quite a number of points with that. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, when we have a division like that of grasslands versus forest, do you think there's going to be places where the forest will actually have grasslands within the context of it? And... And, and vice versa, where the grasslands will have patches of forest as time moves on so that we actually see a, a shift in the visual. Yeah, and that is absolutely happening. And it's a, it's a very interesting study for this region. So a lot of the maintenance of that boundary historically has been associated with fire but also kind of a different fire than we currently use in our natural areas in this area at the moment. A lot of our burning is for invasive species removal. And so it's got a bit of a different timing, a different intensity, because also you know, we're very patchy. We don't have giant swaths of natural areas. So all of the burns are kind of small and, and kind of not intense. So, so that's one factor that without the fire, it definitely pushes it more in the, the tree direction. There are some other folks I work with. Lindsay Darling is over at Purdue. Uh, she's now a PhD student there, but she also works with the Chicago Region Trees Initiative. She's done a lot of work comparing modern tree distribution in, in this area to historical tree cover distribution using the public land survey data. 
where they mapped the Midwest in squares using trees, which is, as somebody from the mountains, both bizarre and awesome. And so Lindsay's been looking at some of that to see where have we seen forest growth? How does that correlate to these old pre-settlement dynamics as well as modern socioeconomic dynamics? And when we look at those data sets, what we've seen is that the suburbs actually have way more trees than they did historically. So we're getting some expansion that way uh, that's really kind of driven by people and generally people with money. In terms of what's going the other way, where there is tree that there isn't now, a lot of that is just straight up land use conversion. So where it right. became farm and right. then it's coming subdevelopments, really. I am unaware of a lot of expansion of uh, prairies. In fact, an incredibly, incredibly, incredibly tiny proportion of the native prairie in Illinois still remains. I forget the number and I don't want to misquote it, um, but it is shockingly tiny in terms of what remains. And so I think a lot of people would love to see there be more prairie kind of reintroduced into the landscape. Um, but we've really seen much more expansion of the trees for many different reasons. As I was kind of thinking about the Quercus macrocarpa, you know, the bur oak just kind of sitting in the middle of that massive meadow and the prairie. And just knowing, you know, that 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 one tree can have so many attachments to life, you know, the hundreds of different organisms that live on it. And and just that one tree alone can create an ecosystem unto itself. And you think about, you know, we can actually make mock meadows or prairie-like circumstances using that type of model, especially in areas that have been over-farmed for a long period of time and that need to go back to a fallow state. Um, that might be something that could be done, uh, you know, in reverse. So it takes a lot of time, though. Yeah, it does it, take a lot it, of time. It sounds like, oh, well, we just do that. But through, you know, lots of years of intensive agriculture, soil communities have been lost. The organic matter has been lost in there. Uh, prairie plants, even though, you know, the top dies off every year, the roots live on and on. And so it takes yeah. years for them to yes. get that far down. And then to get the, the soil community back, the fungi, the insects that are facing additional challenges and the microbes and all these other things. There have been some successes with prairie restoration. The Morton Arboretum Schulenberg Prairie is one of the first ones, but it's a constant effort to maintain through burning, through invasive species removal. It's just always more complicated. Than yeah, and it, it's kind of hard to put back what we've lost. And, and also way back before things were disturbed, you had these huge, huge seed sinks or seed banks that were in the soil that could go on for generations um, because of the length of time that they were there, but we don't have that now. And of course, that's another whole story as you're, as you're mentioning. Your work is really fascinating and you, know, you really should be applauded for what you're doing because you're, you're giving us an idea that you know, scientists have to think 50, 100 years ahead. And most people don't even think past today. And years ago, people always said, you know, we're planting for not us, for people who come after us. And that to me is really commendable. I think it's something that's interesting because for me, my perspective with that 
is really kind of rooted in the trees and growing up in an area where forestry was kind of one of the dominant industries. And, you know, the people that came and, and harvested my parents' property, they did it with an eye towards 50 to 70 year rotations. And so when they're developing these forest management plans, they're not talking to the, the owners are like, okay, what do you want to do next? But really what forest do you want to leave your children and your grandchildren? And what do you want them to be able to do? Even in science, it can be very easy to fall in such a short-sighted cycle because when we get funding from the government or most agencies, it's got a two to three year time cycle. And so there's a lot of pressure. Okay, what can we say in three years? What can we get information on and complete in three years? when we know that all of these dynamics play out at longer timescales. And that's where, you know, being able to lean on a community and an industry built around trees that gets that, that uh, sometimes it's kind of nice to be able to just like, okay, when talking to foresters, 50 years, you got that. You're already managing for that. So let's just think of this in one harvest cycle in terms of framing for the future. That's that's an interesting concept. And I was looking at your website and I saw a picture of you doing a coring or boring of a, of a tree. And can you tell our, our listeners about why it's important to do a coring or bore, boring of an old tree and what it reveals to, um, to a scientist like yourself? Yeah, welcome to one of my soapboxes. Uh, <laughs> the reason we take these tree bores is because trees in areas that get seasonal stress. So here in Chicago, cold, out in the Southwest, it, it can be the monsoon signal, so an extended period uh, without moisture. That's what causes trees to put on annual growth rates. We take these tree cores to get a number of information that are all based to being able to get these annual growth rates. You know, a lot of times in school, we learn that, oh, you can tell a tree, how old a tree is by counting its rings. That is the only way to get a precise age on trees. Size is not age. Even in the same area, just because of trees and competition and how one tree growing tall reduces the light available for the tree right next to it, you're going to trees of the same age and very different sizes. So that's kind of, you know, step number one is, is we're able to tell how old the tree is. And that's something we do here at the Arboretum to understand what, if any, trees we have here are actually from that pre-settlement era. And so there's some of that demography in there, understanding the composition and the age structure of our forests. I find looking at the differences from year to year so much fun and lining that up with weather events or other dynamics. For the handful of trees we have here at the Arboretum that do go into that pre-settlement era, we're able to start kind of reconstructing human history from the trees. When Euro-Americans moved into the Midwest and they cut down trees, it, you know, that same idea, it cut down trees in one area, which reduced uh, the competition, it increased the light and resource availability for remaining trees. And so we see a big explosion in growth that we call a release event. And we're able to line that up pretty closely with when different structures were built or when property changed hands. And we're also able to look at things like the Dust Bowl. How did our trees respond to the drought we had in the 30s? And how does that compare to the kinds of droughts we might see in the future? Does you know this oak versus this other species of oak respond to the same drought event? And understanding 
what makes these trees different and how does that impact what we should recommend people plant? That's fascinating. And I, I think that if people actually saw one of those cores, they'd be blown away. <laughs> we had Ned Barnard on who talked about the coring that he does. And it's just so fascinating every time you look at it. It's like looking at an old tooth or looking at, you know, the foundation of an old home. You know, you see these different levels of structure that you would never see otherwise. And it, it just blows me away. It's really fun. One of, the, one of the things I like being at the Martin Arboretum is that I spend a lot of time talking to non-scientists. Uh, sometimes you know, you're trying to say, yeah, 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 I know that. What's new? Uh, but talking to the the people that want to learn, they get so excited and you can see kind of the light bulb moments. And we love to bring people through what's on the other side of this wall here, which is our collection of, of tree rings and, and cross sections. And it's been such a great opportunity for connecting with people and helping them understand, you know, what happens over these time periods and even climate change. We have brought through congressional representatives, including some that have a reputation for being perhaps a bit skeptical about climate change, but able to take some of these trees like, okay, that's the Dust Bowl. This is growth, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And for this person to be able to touch the sample and say, okay, so this, it grew small and that's because of the Dust Bowl. Like, yes, it's able to make it tangible. And we went further back. So that is carbon from the late 1800s. And this is why it's a problem when we burn it or if we take the tree down is that it's no longer there. It goes back to the atmosphere. And it was just this amazing moment at, at kind of an interaction I was a little nervous about, but the tree rings themselves helping make these tangible connections and these things that you know people have been talked at a ton, but just making that physical connection and being able to see it can be so powerful. That was like one of the recent scientists who was saying that when they were doing some boring out on the Pacific Northwest, they could actually see where and what years the trees were consuming salmon because the bears would bring the salmon and plunk it down by the tree. And you could actually tell the years that the salmon was being consumed by the tree. It was like a slightly different color in the in the ring. And to me, that was like, that tells you, you could see when we started to taper off with salmon populations by the tree rings in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, that's... Metropolitan Chicago region is huge. And I guess the Forest Preserve District system has been in place for decades. I actually don't know how long. I'm just wondering if... Many of them a century or more at this point. Yeah, that sounds right. And in terms of stewardship, particularly for the, the citizens that, you know, love their forests. Are there things you can share with listeners in terms of the do's and don'ts of, of keeping a, a forest healthy other than bulldozers, keeping the bulldozers away? Yeah, there's a lot of big challenges facing our forest, but there's a lot of small things that we can do to help. So earlier I mentioned, you know, the pests and pathogens that have wiped out the elms and then the ashes. Yeah. Uh, over in Pennsylvania, y'all know all about spotted lanternfly. So there's some things we can do as individuals that will help reduce the likelihood of some of that spreading. One is don't move your firewood. Mm -hmm. Even people that know better, you know, sometimes their feelings like, oh, just have mom and dad bring some firewood up from Virginia. And I yell from across the room, no. 
because even if they think it's okay, they think it's it's clean, it's really, really easy for these pests to get in there and to spread. What we plant in our own yards can also have a huge impact. The thing I hear about our forest managers here and all of the surrounding preserve networks is invasive species, invasive plant species. And many of the worst offenders, things like buckthorn, things like honeysuckle, burning bush, multiflora rose, these were all planted on purpose before we realized how they would literally invade into the forest and outcompete everything else and really change those ecosystems. So doing what you can to kind of remove species in your own property or volunteer with the forest preserves, they are always, always looking for volunteers mm. to help remove invasive species. And then also just like not buying them. You know, if we can get the market for some of those to disappear, then they will stop being sold nearly as much. It doesn't need to be full on planting native species because urban environments are stressful and weird. And many of our native species are not well adapted to being in a parking lot. But don't plant the things we know are invasive and kind of keep an eye on it. And so those are two immediate, very tangible things we can do. Yeah. Tangible, concrete impacts on making our forest better. That's very good stuff. Yeah. I know buckthorn uh, is just insanely invasive, but I also know it, it drives everyone from arborists to forest ecologists to citizen volunteers crazy because it it really is aggressive yeah yeah let alone like kudzu in the south i one of my first jobs in college was working in the great smoky mountains national park doing invasive species management mm. and like there are places where you end up having to use herbicide to control these things and like kudzu like growing over everything growing over cars growing over yeah. trees that's kind of the most extreme example but some of these have similar effects, just maybe not quite the, the total coverage that cuts you has. The drama of it, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, and you, you think about our mistakes as humans um, bringing in, and we still haven't learned when we brought in um, rose rosette disease. Um, what it's doing now to the rose industry is ridiculous to get rid of the multiflora rose. And that, that's one good example. But, you know, buckthorn, it, it was used to, to corral animals and it, they had nice spines on them to keep the animals in before the wire fencing was invented. I mean, you, you think about all that and you say, oh, now I understand how it got here and why it was here. And, but it takes time to, to get to the numbers that we've had and take a good hundred years to get to the numbers that we've had. And, yep. and actually the neglect that we did for our own park services and areas that we knew were being invaded by these and we just had the hands-off approach to management and that's another thing that we need to think about too that we can't have a hands-off attitude about invasives and things like that yeah we, we have to prioritize we have to balance multiple values and uses for for a given Place, but I think accepting that and accepting this is what I value in this location helps make it easier to have that discussion about what does it take to promote that state or promote that use and then finding the actions and tools that are appropriate 
for it. Just acknowledge what is important to you or what is important for that, and then use that to frame the conversation I find can be really productive. Well, we're so thrilled that you were able to be on our podcast today. And of course, the question, do you want to ask it how? Oh, sure. Uh, although I always interrupt the flow. I have to ask one more question, and then we'll get to that special question is, Christy, have you observed in, from where you are in Northern Illinois, any uh, self-assisted migration of species uh, coming over from Iowa or points south uh, in Illinois? Any, anything moving up that uh, might not have been here 20, 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question and one that's really hard for me to answer because even yeah. though I've been here for, I guess, six years now, uh, I, it takes a long time to really get to know a place and I don't have that deep knowledge of what has been there. And then my knowledge of the region is kind of rooted in the Arboretum, which has all sorts of really yeah. weird, awesomely right. weird, but weird trees. There are things that I see growing here that I... I I'm always a little surprised that it grows here. And I just don't have that that long history of knowledge of the place to, to kind of put it in context. But there's a big old tulip poplar right behind the research building. Mm -hmm. And where I grew up in Virginia, that was the thing growing so tall down in the hollers. And so I associate it with the South. And then I see it up here in Illinois. Uh, there's also a persimmon right across the parking lot from it. And that's another one that I usually associate with where I grew up in the Appalachians, which was a lot warmer, um, but I see it growing in our streets here, which I think is just so cool. But I yeah, think that is, much of that is kind of a, a recent trend versus like, no, they grow here. You're just, yeah. I'm the new one. <laughs> yeah, right. So what is your favorite tree, Christy? Yeah, I, I like them all. And I feel like this can be a bit of a boring choice. We like the boring. I like white oaks. And I have a lot of different reasons for that. One of them is there was um, a house on a corner that was on my way to the bus stop. And it was a double lot. And there was a big, old, gnarled white oak that just spread over the whole lot. It was so giant. And it was like, if you were to ask somebody to draw an old, gnarled tree, that's what this looked like. Mm. And so it, it it just kind of sticks in my brain. It's like, if you want a tree, it's a white oak. It also has really cool wood. And it's, you know, what we use to age wine and whiskey. So yeah. that's always a plus too. Right. And it's just found everywhere. And it's such a staple of forests throughout the eastern U.S. and the economies that depend on them. Sure, sure. That's a great, a great answer. answer. Yeah. <laughs> Although not, you're not the first to list uh, white oak. In fact, full disclosure, Christy, a lot of people have listed white oak. I'm sure, and I, I always feel like, you know, maybe I should have something more unique or different, but that's the one that resonates with me. That's the number one tree that's picked. And, and you know what is good about that? It's like, you don't forget an old friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to hear about all the work that you're doing in the at the Forest Ecology Lab and basically saving our forests throughout North America. I hope you sleep well at night and that the research really points to positivity and problem solving. 
for for the generations to come. Do what I can. And <laughs> somehow, how I think she's hugging trees all the time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Growing up, my dad worked for a, a, a paper industry, and uh, you know, somebody called me a tree hugger, and I said, "Well, you know, in forestry training." You got to hug the tree to get its diameter to know if it's worth cutting or not. Yes, there you go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thanks so much. We really do appreciate it. Thanks, Christy. Good luck with everything. Not a problem. Thank you all. Bye. Bye-bye. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank <laughs> you.